You can turn in your Bible to Luke. Luke chapter 20 again. And we'll be reading from verse 9. Luke 20 verse 9. And we'll be reading to verse 18 tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the God of glory, the God of the ages, the ancient of days, the eternal God of our salvation, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of all who trust in Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, we worship you. And Father of Jesus, we worship you. And Holy Spirit, all worship and praise and honor goes to you. We worship you three in one and one in three. Perfect God. From eternity to eternity, you are God. Lord, speak with us this evening. Give us an understanding mind and an open heart to receive the truth of Holy Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you have the theme on the screen behind me, God stand against Israel. And we'll see it in this passage as I read later on. So you probably saw at the Rugby World Cup uh, during the match, we, as the Springboks played against France, there was a moment of silence. I don't know if it was before or after the national anthems. There was a moment of silence for those who've been killed in the war so far between uh, Israel and Hamas. And there was a silence for the Israelis who were killed in the war. And the stadium was silent. Except for a bunch of lunatics who purposefully made a noise during the silence to just vent their uh, feelings against Israel, anti-Israel feelings. Now, you know that our government in this country is strongly anti-Israel. <clears throat> and then you know that many conservatives in the United States, especially from the Republican Party, are very pro-Israel. Um, a friend of mine recently posted on his status a very strong statement, pro-Israel. Now, what does Scripture teach about the whole situation and what's going on? in Israel and Palestine. I'm going to give you what I believe is a balanced view. Wim Len sent an article to me some weeks ago that was indeed a very balanced view on the whole situation. So I'm going to tell you what I think and what I think Scripture teaches. You might have a different view from me on end times, um, but that's okay. I hope you'll leave here saying, though I disagree on end time views, I can totally see this, and I believe it's biblical. So let's read uh, what Jesus said about the matter. Luke 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, 
And they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. So I'm going to subdivide this sermon. I'll divide it into three. The first description I'll call Israel and the prophets. And then the second will be Israel and the Messiah. And the third, Israel and God. So Israel and the prophets, verse 9 to 12, we already read that. Now, just to give you some context again, you remember in verse 1, if you were here, uh, that Jesus is busy teaching the people, and he's in the temple, he's preaching the gospel, and then the Jewish spiritual leaders came, and they wanted to trap Jesus. And so they said to Jesus, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And now in verse 9, it's like Jesus is just ignoring them. It's like he's not phased by their question. He did answer them with a question which they couldn't answer. And he's not phased by them. And he just keeps on teaching. Because he has the authority to do this. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's sent by the Father. And so in verse 9 you read, he began to tell a parable. He's continuing his teaching. And he tells the parable in verse 9. And it says, he began to tell the people this parable. The man planted a vineyard, led it out to the tenants, and went into another country for a long while. What does this teaching mean, this story? Who is the owner of the vineyard? God. Who is the vineyard? Israel. How do you know that? Because Yerusha read for us from Isaiah. Who are the tenants? Who are the people who are supposed to take care of the vineyard and see to it that it bears fruit? The Jewish leaders. And we know that because in verse 19 it says the Jewish leaders knew Jesus told this parable against them. They are the ones who instigate the nation to kill the prophets and so on. So God has done everything possible to ensure that this vine will bear fruit. Now, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, in the same parable, uh, Matthew 21, verse 33, it says that the owner of the, uh, owner of the vineyard, he planted the vineyard, he dug a hole for the wine press, so there can be wine, he built a tower, so there's security, so thieves don't come and steal the grapes, he built a wall around the vineyard, 
so there won't be wild boars and all kinds of animals coming and ravaging it and so on. And then he planted it in fertile soil, so there's enough nutrients in the ground, and that Yosha read from Isaiah 5. So everything possible, you can read, read Isaiah 5, we did that, you can read Psalm 80, that says Israel is the vine, and he did everything possible so they would bear fruit. So what was the only thing that the tenants had to do, the herders? The only thing the tenants had to do was to ensure that the vineyard is protected and they need to take care of it. And they didn't. You read Ezekiel 34. They slaughtered God's people. They slaughtered the sheep, to use another illustration. They fleeced them. They didn't take care of them. The priests were supposed to teach the word of God, says Malachi 2 verse 7. Jesus, Jesus almost tore them to pieces by rebuking them in Matthew 23, these spiritual leaders saying, you evil people, you wicked people, you vipers, you snakes, you, you white plastered tombstones, outside you look beautiful, inside you're full of dead people's bones, you're not setting an example to God's people, you're laying burdens on God's people, you don't lift a finger to help them to carry the burden, you're sending people to hell, you cross oceans to get to people to proselytize, that means you bring them to the Jewish faith, they're not Jews, they're Gentiles, and you teach them about the God of Israel, but now you make them twice as, twice as prepared for hell as you are. And so now the season for grapes, it's come, the grapes are ripe, the vineyard's bearing fruit, and so what does the owner do? The owner sends servant. He sends a servant to tell them, all right, season has come, where's the fruit? Where, where are the grapes? And what do they do? They don't give fruit. They don't produce, well, the fruit has been produced on the vine, but they don't give it to the servants. Verse 10 to 12, we read, one after the other, they chase these servants away. They beat them up. Some of them are murdered, according to Matthew. And it's not only three servants. You read Matthew and it says, and many other servants were sent. Who are the servants? The prophets. Can I read to you from Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15? The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. One upon another, the messengers are sent, saying, bring the fruit of repentance, show the fruit of repentance, show changed lives. But they will not. They keep on serving idols. They will not serve the God of Israel who has redeemed them and saved them from Egypt. And so again and again, you just read the prophets. You read Isaiah. And Isaiah says, how long will you keep on oppressing widows? How long will you keep on not helping the poor and being unkind to orphans? And the foreigners you chase away, xenophobia. How long is this going to keep on? How long will you turn away and serve idols? How long will you come and worship me in my temple and lift your hands to God because we're singing His praises, but those hands are covered in blood, you murdering people. And in our country we can say the same, slaughtering babies by the millions. 
And so Ezekiel, oh, he's a maker of parables. He's a maker of parables. Oh, they love to hear your teaching. They are experts at listening to sermons and they can decipher them. And they can strip the sermon and say, oh, what great structure and the illustrations were fantastic. Oh, the applications were moving. But where's the heart that's moved? They hear, but they will not do, says Ezekiel. Or you take the book of Joel, where they do not tear their hearts, but they tear their clothes. They tear their clothes. We're fasting. Oh, Lord, hear us. Why isn't there rain? Why aren't you blessing us? Rend your hearts, not your garments, says Joel. Turn to the Lord. That's the fasting God desires. And John the Baptist, obviously, the last of the Old Testament prophets, though he appears in what we call the New Testament. But he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And John the Baptist, same message, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then, what do we see? What do these tenants do? Come, it's time to gather the grapes. It's time to give it to the owner. Do they deliver? Oh, no. No, they don't deliver. We saw it already. Chase away the prophets, murder them. No, Amos, Amos, you don't preach here. The king said he doesn't want your message. You go and preach somewhere else. Don't preach in this vicinity. He wants the, the priest wants to chase Amos away in Amos chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. John the Baptist, you preach again. You warn us again. You preach again about repentance. I cut off your head. And they did. King Herod was under his command. Isn't that, isn't that exactly what happened? In 2 Chronicles 36, verse 16, they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. There's no solution more. You've heard it all. I can't tell you anything more. You won't hear this. You won't hear anything. And so God's judgment will come. And that happened. That happened in Israel. It happened. That's what Stephen said. Stephen said, which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And now God sends you the righteous one. God sends you the Messiah and you murdered him by the hands of wicked men. And so they did throughout their history, the people of Israel, a stubborn people to this day. A stubborn people. All throughout rejected, 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 rejected the, the prophets from the very first, from the very first. And I'm talking about the prophets of Israel, not the prophets before them. But even those. They didn't want Moses. Who are you? Who made you a judge and ruler over us? And they shove him aside. And I can give you many passages. I've got them here. From the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel and Chronicles and so on. And even today. Even today, I'm not only talking about the Jews. Talking about people to this day. Many pastors experience the same. You don't even have to ask me who's a full-time elder in this church. You can ask the elders like Rulf and Yosha and Kuis. You can ask them too. You can ask them too. You can ask my friends who are in the ministry. Many pastors, they experience the same. There will be no repentance after many sessions of counseling, telling people, please repent. Please repent. This is what the Lord wants of you. And you can, you can plead with them. You can beg them. After many efforts of evangelizing people who will attend the church, and they will come, and they're not yet saved, and you preach to them again and again, you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations talking to them, please repent, please trust in the Lord Jesus. You can go into the streets, you can ask Ebert and Lawrence, 
in street evangelism. You can ask Jeanette, you can ask Timothy, you can ask any Christian here who's done that pleading with family members to repent. And people just stubbornly continue in their sin. And the faithful pastor will do what the psalmist does. Oh, how I weep for those who do not keep your law. The faithful pastor will sigh. The faithful, faithful pastor will lie awake at night. Talk to them again. They will not repent. I've seen this in church discipline cases where, it, where it's a step one or a step two. It hasn't come before the church. And you talk to those people again and again. They just will not repent. The faithful pastor will be like the Apostle Paul. I am anxious about the churches. A faithful pastor will be like the Apostle Paul, even be angry because people are made to stumble. People come from the outside and they make church members stumble into sin. They tempt them to turn away from the Lord. Second is Israel and the Messiah. So that's Israel and the prophets. Now Israel and the Messiah, that's verse 13 to 15a, and I've read that already. Now, what could this owner have done to the people who murdered his servants and beat them up and stoned them and chased them away? What could he have done if he wanted to? He could have killed them on the spot. He could have just wiped them out. And yet, what does he do? What do we read in verse 11? Sends another servant. Sends another servant. Sends another servant. In Gospel of Matthew, sends servant upon servant, many more, many more. For hundreds of years, the history of Israel. And then finally, what does he do? He sends his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So the, 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 the owner of the vineyard says in verse 13, What shall I do? And I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now Jesus is not saying, Oh, God didn't know that they're going to crucify Jesus. He, he just took a chance, shot in the dark, leap in the dark, just hope that maybe... No, no. No, God knew. God knew. That's why he sent his son, to die for sinners. The point Jesus is making is not that God didn't know maybe they will, they will accept my son and not kill him. Rather, the point Jesus is making is that this God, this God will go to the, he will do his uttermost. He will go to the extreme to save sinners. His uttermost to call his people to repentance. And say, please produce the fruit of repentance. He's a God of compassion. This God is more than willing to save you. Even if you have sinned your whole life. Even if you have been a rebel against God your whole life. He's still willing to save you. Even if there's been sin for millennia. For hundreds of years among God's people, the Jews. He's still willing to save. 
He showed it by saving a thief on a cross. Right at the end of that criminal's life, God is still willing to save. Jesus is also showing us there does exist such a thing as a final chance. There is such a thing as an end to God's patience. And we see this in the parable. You know, God's patience, God is very patient. His patience is like diesel. Diesel, it's difficult to ignite. You can't just take a match and light diesel like you can petrol. It's very difficult to ignite. But, if it's kindled, you've got a roaring fire. And that is God's anger. That is God's wrath. That is God's patience. If I may read to you from the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty, verse 6. Who can stand before his anger, his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Slow to anger, but once that fire has been ignited. How do you know when it's your, when it's your last chance? You don't. That's what makes it so dangerous. That's why you cannot play with God. That's why you cannot postpone repenting of your sins and coming to the Savior. You never know when it will be your last, last chance. Seek the Lord, says the prophet, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him turn to the Lord. For he has compassion unto our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God's forgiveness is overflowing to those who repent. So seek him while he may be found. Did the tenants take the opportunity they had when the servants came and said, fruit of repentance, another servant, fruit of repentance, another servant, fruit of repentance. Eventually the Son of God coming to this world, fruit of repentance. Did they repent? What did they say when the son came to them? They did not only say, let's kill him. Why did they say, let us kill him? What does it say in verse 14 and 15? Why did they want to kill him? So the inheritance can be ours. Can I read you a verse? Would you like to turn there with me? John 11, verse 48 and 50. This is exactly what they said. John 11, verse 48 to 50. This is the high priest speaking. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, that's the other Jewish leaders, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus would die for the nation. And then it goes on, not for the nation only, but together into one, all the children of God who are scattered abroad. Just go back a bit. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will, will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. We want the inheritance for ourselves. We don't want Jesus to have it. Kill him. Throw him outside of the vineyard. Where did they kill Jesus? Outside the city. Cast him out as if to say you're an outcast. You have no part in this inheritance. It's ours. And they still want that. They still want that. And I'm not talking about Jews. Yes, and unbelieving Jews too. But unbelieving Gentiles too. They still want that. We do not want this Messiah. We do not want this God to reign over us. We do not want him in our schools. We do not want him in our educational system. We do not want him in the curriculum. We do not want him in our politics. We do not want him in our moral lives telling us what can we do and what can we not do. We do not want him to tell us what sexuality should be, that there's male and female only. We do not want him in our Sunday. We will have our malls open on Sunday. We will have our sport on Sunday. We will have our entertainment on a Sunday. We will provide all you want on a Sunday. We do not want to give worship to this God and gather with his people on the Lord's Day. You know, a South African man living in Australia now, in Western Australia, he's a pastor. And we had a long, an hour-long conversation about him probably a month and a half ago, maybe a bit more, but it couldn't have been more than two months ago. We spoke for an hour, and he said to me, you know, in Australia, church is not neutral. In Western Australia, they are negative about church. They are hostile against the gospel and Christianity. They, they are, it's like they want to attack Christianity and wipe it off the map. They don't want Christianity. And he says, the government in Australia will provide you with everything to replace Jesus. In Western Australia, we will give you a sport club, and we will have it on Sundays for you, and we will be your community. Are you ill? The sport club will take care of you. Are you going through a hard time? The sport club will be there for you. We will be your church. And they've got, this will shock you, it shocked me. They've got in the workplace, are you going through a hard time? Are you depressed? Have you got marriage problems? Have you got financial problems? We don't have an HR. We have pastoral care. Pastorale sorg. They call it pastoral care. It's not Christian. Nothing to do with the Bible. We will replace Jesus. Anything Jesus can do, we can do. And they forget. They want to take the inheritance of the Son of God. Let's kill the Son and the inheritance will be ours. They forget. Psalm 2 verse 8. The Father saying to the Son, Ask of me and I will give 
The nations as your heritage, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will not take away from the Son of God his inheritance. He died to save people from every tribe and language and people and nation. He will inherit the nations. And they will come and bow before him in worship, says Psalm 86 verse 9. And he will be the king of the nations. And he is the king. And the nations will come and bow before him, all the families of the earth, says Psalm 22 verse 27 and 28. You can go and read it on your own time. Jesus will rule at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. It's his. He's the heir, the Erfgenaam. He's the heir of all things, says Hebrews 1 verse 2. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. You kill the son, cast him out. You think the inheritance is yours? It's by that very death he dies, by that very murder that takes place that he gets the inheritance. Number three, Israel and God. That's verse 15b to verse 18. And I've already read that too. What happened when Israel, and instigated by the Jewish leaders, what happened when they would not acknowledge Jesus and when they murdered him? What does verse 15b to verse 16a say? What happened? You can answer aloud. They? The owner of the, of the vineyard said, I will destroy them. Did that, did that happen? More than a million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans. 67 to 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. God did that indeed. And he said, I will destroy those tenants and I will give the vineyard, says it in verse 16, give the vineyard to others. Matthew and Mark say, he will give the vineyard to others who will produce the fruit. Who are the others? The Gentiles. I will reject Israel. I will turn my back on Israel and I will take this to the Gentiles. They will believe. They will produce the fruit of repentance. And then he calls them the Israel of God, the true Israel. And he calls them the children of Abraham. May I read to you and will you follow with me? Romans 2, verse 28 and 29. Romans 2, 28 and 29. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Who is the real Jew? It's the one who has a circumcised heart. 
And you read the passage, you read from verse 25, he's talking about external circumcision, talking to the Jews. The whole passage is about the Jews. And he says, you are not the real Jews. The real Jews are those who have heart circumcised, whether they are ethnic Jews or whether they are ethnic Gentiles. They are the true Jews. Chapter 9, Romans. Verse 6 to 8. But it is not as though the word of God failed, had failed, or has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall the offspring be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh, in other words, physical, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. Go to Galatians, just page on. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. As the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not only Jews, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations, so it's not only Jews who are children of Abraham, all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Skip to verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Skip to verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say offsprings, referring to many, but offspring. One who is Christ. Go to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, is according to the promise. Go to chapter 4, verse 28. Now you brothers, who are these you brothers? The Galatians. Most of them are not Jews. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Go to chapter 6, verse 16. As for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The previous rule, not, cre not circumcision or uncircumcision, but a new heart, new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace be up and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So the whole context of Galatians, who's the real Israel? Jew and Gentile who have been united to Christ. Go to Ephesians, just flip over to the next book. Ephesians 2 verse 12. Remember that you, he's talking to the Gentiles, who were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how it was. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once false, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Skip to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles. But you are fellow citizens of what? Of Israel. He said it in verse 12. You were away from Israel. Now you are fellow citizens of Israel. Just like Rahab in the Old Testament or Ruth. Through faith in the true God. You fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Go to chapter 3, Ephesians, verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and members of the same body. 
and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then the last one, you can go there on your own, maybe later on. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where it says, You who were no people, now you are a people. You were not loved, now you are beloved. And then he says in verse 10, uh, a similar thing. I don't want to misquote it. Maybe I should read it because it's slipped my mind now. Um, Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Previous verse, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That was said of Israel in Exodus 19. Now God says it of the Gentiles in the New Testament. So, may I make a very strong statement, but I will back it up with Scripture. The Jews at this moment in Israel fighting this war, those who do not believe in Jesus are in the same position as Hamas, as the Muslims. Let me read to you, and this is a strong statement, but it's biblical. 1 John 2 verse 22, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son, Jesus, has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father always. Also, that means Jew and Gentile, whoever denies Jesus is an Antichrist. That's strong. That's what the text says. So what should we pray for the Jews during this war? What should we pray for Hamas during this war? First of all, I believe, and some of you might disagree, but I think I've got this down biblically. I believe there will be a mass conversion of the Jews in the future. I don't know when, um, but I believe there will be a mass conversion of ethnic Israel. I don't think every single Jew is going to be saved, but on the whole the nation will be saved. And I believe that that in turn will spark a revival among the Gentiles. So let me read to you if you want to turn there again, uh, and we're almost done. Oh, 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 am I almost done? Okay, maybe not. Go to Romans 11 for a moment. Romans 11, verse 12. Paul says, If their trespass, in other words, the Jews, their trespass, their disobedience, their rebellion... If their trespass means riches for the world. So when God rejected the Jews, he turned to the Gentiles, and now many Gentiles have come to faith over the centuries. So if the trespass of Israel means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more will it mean when Israel comes to faith in Christ? Their full inclusion, how many Gentiles, what will happen then? Look at verse 15, what will happen? If their rejection, the Jews, means reconciliation of the world, now the Gentiles have come to Christ, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It'll be a revival. Skip on. Move down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, you Gentiles, 
I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. The Jews in Israel today who do not believe in Jesus are not friends of God. And God is not their friend. They are enemies of God and God is their enemy. Because they will not accept his son. It says so in our parable. They are enemies for your sake, so that the gospel come to the Gentiles. But as regards election, they are beloved, so God loves them, just like God loved you and me when we were still his enemies. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. You can't take it away, you can't turn it around. God will save the Jews. And then I can read some other passages for the sake of time. I'm not going to do so. Isaiah chapter 60, when Israel gets saved, the Gentiles will turn. I actually love that passage because it specifically says in that passage that the descendants of Ishmael will turn. Who are those Arabic nations? Who are those Muslims? The Jews despised the Gentiles. They called them dogs. They despised, they hated the Gentiles. The Jews believed we have exclusive right upon the covenant, upon the promises, upon the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, upon the giving of the law, upon the land. We have exclusive right. None of you are welcome. We have exclusive right upon this God. He's the God of Israel. And that's why, if you back in the parable, back in Luke, that's why they said in verse 16, when Jesus said he will destroy those tenants, he'll give the vineyard to someone else who will produce the fruit. And what did the Jewish leaders say? What did the tenants say? Surely not. That will never happen. God will never reject us. He will never turn his back on us. And Jesus looks them straight in the eye. And he says to them, verse 17, then what about this verse in the Old Testament? And he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What do you say about that? Now the picture you need to understand. Israel, now the picture changes. This is no longer a picture of farmers, a vineyard, tenants, servants coming to get grapes. Now the picture changes to builders on a building site. And so they're busy putting up, this foundation is laid, they're busy putting up this building. Now the cornerstone needs to be laid, a massive stone that connects a foundation and walls and walls and walls at the corner. And they're looking at the building site, what stone can we take? And they see this stone, and this is actually the perfect stone to use as a cornerstone. They say, no, this is rubbish. And they take it out and they chuck it outside. The building site outside the city, they throw it where the rubble is thrown, the building rubble. That's what they do with Jesus. Throw it out. Verse 17. And then God raises him from the dead. And Jesus comes back from the dead and God makes him the cornerstone. He says, this stone that you rejected, I make him the cornerstone of my new temple. As we read last week in Ephesians 2 verse 20. 
There's a new temple I'm building. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will dwell in this temple. And it will be the, the prophets and apostles will lay the foundation and Christ will be the cornerstone. This, this stone that you rejected. And then when the cornerstone comes and it's back on the building site, they stumble over the stone. And they stumble over the stone. But this temple, it's like it's built on a precipice. It's up a wuchter, it's up a afgrond gebou. And it's built on the precipice and like they stumble over the stone. And verse 20 says, verse 18 says at least, everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. Like they stumble over it and they crash, they plummet to their death. They plummet right into hell. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 8 verse 14, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And Peter quotes that in 1 Peter 2 verse 7 and 8. And he says they stumble as they were destined to do. And then the picture continues. It says, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the picture is this. The picture is they on this building state, they rejected the stone. It becomes the cornerstone. And before it's laid, it's like they stumble over it and they stumble to their death. But as they're falling down this cliff, it's like the stone now comes right after them. And as they, they land on the ground, it crushes them. That's the picture. And we see that in the New Testament. We see that with Jesus Christ who will come in flaming fire with all His holy angels and the glory of His Father. And He will destroy them with an everlasting destruction. All those who have not obeyed His gospel, repented and believed in the Son of God. So let me close with some application. Anyone who rejects this stone and says, I will build my own foundation. I will have my own foundation of works and of religion. I'll have my own foundation and way to get to heaven or through other saviors and prophets and books and whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll carve out my own way. I don't need this stone. You will lie on your deathbed and you will know, your conscience will tell you, judgment is coming. You are heartbeats away from being under the judgment of God. You are breaths away from being crushed by this stone. And what will you do then? What will you do then? Any of you, any of you who don't follow the Lord Jesus yet, or you love your sin, you profess Jesus, but you don't live Jesus, or watching online, what will you do for your eternal soul when you are in those final moments of, of life and he do it snicker? You will be lost. You will be lost like someone lost in a mountain where the mist is thick and you cannot find your way. You'll be in a haze. You'll be in a fog. Your mind will not think straight because you trusted in your own foundation and rejected the cornerstone. You rejected the foundation of God and now your life is at an end and your life is coming. Your, your whole life like a building that comes tumbling to the ground. What a tragedy, what a wasted life. Trusting in religion and whatever else. I plead with you as I did this morning. I'm not shouting at you, I'm not fighting with you. I'm pleading in the name of Christ to be reconciled to God. I'm pleading, you have the word of God tonight. And some of you need to go to whoever you know and plead with God for their souls or talk to them and plead with them. One of our church members this morning said, pray with me. 
Pray with me. I'm going to talk to my brother today. Pray. Build upon the foundation that God has given. He's given the Lord Jesus. He's given the cornerstone. Don't build on your own foundation. That's what Peter tells us. This is a precious stone, a cornerstone. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do what, if I can close with this illustration then, do what David Dixon did. David Dixon lived in the 15 and 1600s. And in 1663, he was lying in his, on his deathbed in Scotland. And David Dixon, as he's lying there, he says these words. He says, I've taken all my good deeds. Did you hear that? Not my bad deeds, not my sins. First of all, I've taken all my good deeds. And I've cast them together with all my bad deeds. I put them on a heap, my good deeds and my bad deeds. And I've turned my back on them. And I've fled from them to Jesus Christ. In Him I have sweet peace. Please may I ask you this. Do not forget the Jews in Israel. I prayed for them tonight, for their conversion. Please do not forget to pray for the lost Jews. Do not forget to pray for the lost, lost Muslims. Before you get involved in politics, I'm not saying it's wrong to follow this thing politically. But I am saying you are on a very dangerous track and on a deceitful track if you're going to merely follow this politically, the war between Hamas and Israel. If you follow it politically, and you say, on which side am I? Or if you get involved in unfulfilled prophecy without praying for the conversion of the Jews and Hamas, what does it help? Israel, it's right that we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, says Psalm 122. But please, if you do pray for that, pray for it biblically. What will it help? There's political peace. But the Jews and the Muslims do not have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for that. I pray that they would have peace with God through your Son. Father, save the Jews. Save them. Bring the nation to repentance. Fulfill your promises, O God. And save many Muslims. Turn them from their false religion to the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the only God, the only Savior of sinners. Oh Lord, please. It is my personal prayer. Would you give me the privilege in my lifetime to lead a Jew to Christ, I pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. <coughs>